Well, we're going through the book of Luke, where the last time that we saw John the Baptist, he was eight days old, lying in the arms of his father, Zechariah, who was singing a prophetic song over him about all that God was going to do in and through him. But now... We're going to see that baby all grown up, courageously speaking the word of God in a day that was filled with the same kind of darkness and confusion that's still with us today. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And you follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Triconitus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham even now. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he Preached good news 
to the people. So does God have anything to say to us in a year like 2020 and on the heels of an election week like we've just lived through? Oh, yes, he does. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one, God's word still moves in dark, tumultuous times. Listen to me. These are not the first dark and tumultuous times our world has lived through. And the first two verses of our chapter drive this home to us. And if you're saying, Brad, all I see in the first two verses is a list of historical names, then let me help you. Because it's more than just a list of who was ruling at that time. It's a list of some of the most corrupt and irresponsible leaders that had ever ruled their land. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, his two brothers, Philip and Licinius, as well as the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, had created a culture that was dominated by a level of fear, injustice, and corrupt power that they had not seen to that point. And so, yes, I keep telling you, Luke is careful. He never meant to create a fairy tale. It's history. So Luke is wanting to document the historicity of his letter and fix it in the context of A.D. 29 when these wicked men were ruling. But he also, also wants to communicate the dark, foreboding time into which... The word of God came to John. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. Because that is such a sweet phrase tucked into two very dark verses. The word of God came to John. Listen to me. The level of darkness and corruption and confusion they had going on could not keep God's word from coming because you can't stop it. You couldn't stop it then and you can't stop it now. Oh, that's good. That should help some of you sleep better. Better. Oh my goodness. Darkness, corruption, confusion, and injustice do nothing to slow down the power and presence of God's word in our world. And so you ought to underline that phrase in verse 2. Glue some sparkles there. Do something to make that pop and stand out. The word... Of God. It's not out there somewhere and we got to look for it. Came to John. Because that's what God is still doing today. So often we say, why doesn't God do something about all that's going on? Does he see? Does he know? Does he care? And what we really mean 
is why doesn't God change our circumstances and take out the people I don't like? People that scare me, people that don't think like me, people who don't hold the values I do, don't have the same goals I do, don't see it the way I see it. Oh, God, come and do something about them. And God says this, I hear you. I hear your cry and I'm on it. But I'm going to do something even better. So perk up. I'm going to give you my word in the very midst of those circumstances as you live with and under some of those scary people. And you say, bummer. No, not bummer. That's how God's been doing it for centuries. I'm going to give you my word in the very midst of those circumstances as you live with and under some of these scary people. Oh, if you've been praying, I have. God has heard our cry and has given us his word. And so the only question that really remains is what are you doing with it? Are you reading it? Are you resting in it? Are you renewing your mind with it? Are you filling your heart with a perspective that is beyond the temporary and stretches out into the eternal? Some of you are about to lose your mind. You say, how do you know that? You're on social media declaring that you're losing it. Some of you are about to lose your mind because you're filling it with so many time-bound, temporary blogs and podcasts that keep you up to date on the latest thing that someone outside of your camp has said or done that scares you and you don't agree with while you barely glance at your Bible. So I want to ask you, how much peace do you have? How much joy do you have? And when is the last time you pointed someone to the hope you have in Jesus and what he's done for you that has nothing to do with the pandemic and nothing to do with Black Lives Matter and nothing to do with the presidential election or politics? All three of these hot issues are all time bound and temporary and have no power to keep God from doing what matters most. Your problem, my friend, is that some of you have an agenda conflict between you and God as to what matters most. And you're the one that needs to adjust. Or you will lose your mind 
lose your joy, and lose your Christian witness. Listen to me. If we as Christians are only talking about the same things the world is talking about in the same way, with the same level of hate and anger, then we are no longer the salt and light that he's called us to be. Don't hear what I didn't just say. I did not say Christians should not have an opinion. I did not say we should not weigh in. I did not say we should pull back and have nothing to do with I said, if you are only talking about the same things the world is talking about in the same way, with the same level of hate and anger and panic, you are not being the salt and light that he's called us to be. Because we are salt and light most when we introduce into the conversation something Else, namely, yea, verily, someone else. Say it. Jesus. Some of you have made this year a yeah, yeah, Jesus year. Yeah, 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 of course, Jesus. But Brad, right now. But Brad, nothing. Right now, Jesus. There's never been a time that our world needs more of Jesus and more of his people To live like Jesus and talk like Jesus and be, he said that we would be peculiar people. A peculiar people. Right now, anger is in. That's not peculiar, you guys. If that's your main thing now, you're not peculiar. Hate is in right now. If that's your main thing, you're not peculiar. Fear is all over the place. If that's what you're gripped with most, you're not peculiar. Want me to go on? Let's be peculiar. Salt and light. Because listen, these are not the first dark, tumultuous times God's people have lived through. And it can't stop God from changing lives. It can't stop God from building his church. And it can't stop God from spreading his kingdom. You may be scared. You may be frustrated, but our God is not. He still reigns and he still reigns as a very happy God. There's so much that you have no power to change and that I have no power to change. But listen to me. Number two, your life can be changed by trusting in God's son. But for that to happen, you'll need for your life to be changed by trusting God's son. You'll need far more than just a new set of intellectual beliefs. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Yes. Christianity rests on a distinct set of beliefs about our God, our world, our biggest problem and what his son has done for us about it. But get this, becoming a Christian is far more than just some kind of cerebral process of getting your head around these truths. New birth, which is synonymous with becoming a Christian. 
involves turning away from your sin and trusting in God's Son. Turning away from your sin and trusting in God's Son. It is both. Both. That's why John uses the word repentance in verse 8. Look at it again. Verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, Oh, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, you can't trust in your birth, in your family, or in any religious upbringing or connections that you have. None of that makes any difference. And that word repentance in the New Testament is the Greek word metanoia. And it's a word that means a change of mind or attitude that is so strong, it changes the direction and actions of your life. You say, what are you getting at, Brad? Well, just be honest for a minute. There are things you say you believe, right? That don't change anything you do. Guess what? You don't really believe that. And there are things you say you believe. And it changes what you do next. Because that's what you believe. If that's what you believe then. A belief. A change in thinking and mind and attitude. That is so strong. It changes the direction and actions and choices and priorities of your life. In other words, here's how I'd say it. Repentance is belief that impacts behavior. Repentance is belief that impacts behavior. Now, I know there's a danger whenever I begin to teach this way, but I have to because the Bible teaches this way. So I've been praying, praying, praying that some of you will not get confused. Because we live in such a day that thinks if I'll try to change my behavior and work hard to change my life, then maybe God will accept me. The Bible does not teach that. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ. Plus what? That's how you get saved. Here's the danger. We got too many people who think, and after he saves me, I also do nothing. I keep going hard after my sin. I love my sin. I wallow in my sin. I promote my sin. I hide my sin. But I don't go to hell now. Hallelujah. That's not what the Bible teaches. When you're born again, when you're spiritually alive, it starts a war between you and your flesh and you and your enemy that lies to you and you and the world If there's no war between you and your flesh and Satan and the world, you may still be dead in your trespasses and sins. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But we've got a generation of so-called Christians that have grown up believing that Christianity boils down to nothing more than agreeing with a set of theological truths. Like admitting that you're a sinner or accepting, quote, Jesus into your heart, but without any need to turn from your sin. Nothing needs to change. 
But that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible talks about faith and repentance as being two sides of the same salvation coin. Faith. And because I believe, I therefore turn away from what I was trusting in, what I was making my refuge, what I was delighting in, what I was building my world around. It's faith and repentance. These two things go together. But we've got a culture that treats repentance as optional. Here's how it sounds sometimes. And I'm old enough that in the 80s, there were books being written like this that were horrible. And praise God, John MacArthur and some other wrote some to combat it. And it was this whole thing. I, oh, you know what? You know why my life still looks like such a mess? You know why there's no difference between me and an unbeliever? I took Jesus as my savior. I just didn't decide to make him Lord. I, I don't want to do anything he says. I just don't want to go to hell. Guess what? If Jesus isn't Lord, he isn't your savior. These two things go together. You don't take him as your savior and say, I'm going to decide whether I want to do anything he says. Not what the Bible teaches. Listen, if you have no desire, don't hear me saying you're perfect. If you have no desire to do what your savior says and you're making no plans to even try. You're probably not spiritually alive and you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. Even if you prayed a prayer, even if you walked an aisle, even if you shook a hand, filled out a card, got baptized, threw a stick in the fire at youth camp. I don't know what you did that you thought signaled now I'm okay. Push all that off the table. Here's what you ought to consider to determine if you're okay. Are you spiritually alive and do you have any desire to please the Savior, to follow him? You love him and you want to please him and it breaks your heart when you don't. And then you'll make plans again to try to do better and, and, it, and you're, you're disappointed when you don't. But you get back up because, you know, I don't have to prove or earn his favor and love. He loves me and because he loves me, I want to follow him. Is any of that going on in you? That's what the Bible teaches. Is happening in the lives of believers who have been made alive, who have life in Jesus Christ. And Christians, I hope, I hope you don't check out on me now because I'm going to head into a whole section on what is real repentance. Don't do this. Don't think, oh, okay, I hope every unbeliever is listening to this whole section because repentance is just something you do at the beginning and that's how you become a Christian and get on the path and after that, we're done with repentance. That's not what the Bible teaches either. So I want everyone to listen well because I want to unpack a little bit what is biblical repentance? Because repentance is just not how you become a Christian. It's a lifelong process. Don't hear me saying it's a lifelong process of, I think one day I will be a Christian. No, when you repent and trust in Christ, it begins an ongoing process now 
of more and more turning away from what I would naturally do and want and turning towards the greater joy of knowing Jesus and being satisfied in Jesus, knowing Jesus and being satisfied in Jesus. And as I know him more and more and am more satisfied in what he offers instead of the world, I begin to sin less and less. Some of you, you wonder why. Why is this so hard for me? Why is it such a struggle to say no to my sin? Now, for some of you, it could be that you're still lost. You have no power but your own. But there are others of you that you are born again. You're a Christian. Let me help you. To say no to your sin and what the world and your flesh offers, you have to be tasting on a regular basis and experiencing something better. A greater burning, yes. A greater satisfaction. I've been with Jesus. I've sat at his feet. I've delighted in who he is and what he's done for me and what he's doing, what he's going to yet do. I've heard his words. That gives me a greater ability to say no. But some of you, when you just start your day with good morning America, it's not a good morning. It's one of the best ways to upset yourself right from the beginning. Some of you just start your day with coffee and TV and blogs and you think spending time with Jesus and reading his word and throwing up your hands and worshiping and singing out loud and laying hold of promises and getting your perspective renewed through his word is optional. It's not. You will not do well. You will not have the power to say no because you don't have a greater burning Yes, yes. John Calvin talked about this in his institutes, this process of repentance that is not one and done. He says, and I quote, this restoration does not take place in a moment or in one day or one year, but through continual and sometimes even slow advances. God assigns to Christians A race of repentance, which they are to run throughout their lives. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance. I'm to be continually repenting. God just keeps showing me more that needs to be worked on. But he's a good father. He never overwhelms me. He doesn't show it all to me to just crush me. He'll just put his finger on one area. And I'm like, oh, yes, Lord, let's work on that. And when I begin to make progress and repent and bear a little bit of better fruit, I don't say, well, hallelujah, I'm done now. It's like, oh, he moves here. And I'm like, oh, yes, Lord. It is a life of ongoing repentance. So let me ask you, Christians, are you running the race of repentance? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit as he convicts you about specific sins in your life? Seems like we have a year that everybody's so good at seeing everybody else's sin. When's the last time you were gripped and horrified by your own? The Holy Spirit would love to show you some of that. Are you listening to the Holy Spirit as he convicts you about specific sins in your own life? And then do you make plans to do anything about it? Or do you just say, oh, well, that's just who I, you finish it, am. Listen, believer, 
If you're born again and the resurrected Jesus lives in you, the chains of sin have been broken, you can't say that's who I am. You have to say that's who I was. And by God's grace, there's power now to change. The DNA for change resides in every believer because the power of the gospel has exploded in every believer and the resurrected Jesus lives in every believer. The DNA for change resides in you. Will it be easy? No. Is it possible? Repentance is not just an event that starts your relationship with Jesus. It's a process, a lifelong process that continues, continues the transformation of you and me becoming more like Jesus for a lifetime. That's the end game, you guys. Not information, transformation, transformation, transformation. And so if we're supposed to be repenting for a lifetime, then what does biblical repentance look like? Because there's a lot of confusion and counterfeits running around out there. Here's the first, number one. Repentance is more than a feeling of sorrow. John's message of repentance focused on changed behavior far more than any feelings. Did you notice that? In fact, he doesn't talk about any new feeling because feelings of sorrow come, feelings of sorrow go. You ready? And feelings of sorrow can still be rooted in very selfish motives. You say, oh, but he's crying, Brad. I mean, hard, like, like hyperventilates, you know, shoulders shaking, crying. I was there. I saw it. Great. What you didn't see is his heart. What is he crying about? What is he sorry about? He could just be sorry that he's caught. He's been found out. He could be sorry that his favorite pleasure has now ended. It's no longer a secret. He could be sorry for all of the complicated tangled, unpleasant consequences that he has to face now because his sin is out. Like maybe a lost job or financial upheaval or shame and shattered relationships with his wife and family and kids or a tarnished reputation now. What is he crying about? He may not be sorry for his sin. He still may just be sorry for himself. You say, well, that is ugly, pastor. Where did you get such an attitude? The Bible. That's what Paul was talking about, you guys. That's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 7 when he says in verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation and is not to be regretted. It's not filled with regrets. But, but... The sorrow of the world produces death. Paul is saying there's two kinds of sorrow, so don't be fooled. There's two kinds of sorrow, so don't be fooled. Every sorrow is not rooted in repentance. 
There's a worldly sorrow that has the same tears, the same level of emotion. There's a worldly sorrow that still keeps you on the path of death and does not change the direction of your life because your heart hasn't changed. What you really want hasn't changed. What's most important to you and what you value and prize and worship most has not changed. Number two, another source of confusion. Repentance is more than just confessing your sins out loud. Listen to me. Confessing your sin to someone else, even in great and gory detail, is not equal to repentance if you have no desire or designs to turn away from it. But we live in such a therapeutic age. Oh my goodness. We live in such a therapeutic age that makes heroes and heroines out of anyone who's willing to spill their guts on public television or in a blog or in a book because it's so real and raw and authentic. Let me help you here. If it doesn't lead to repentance or change, There's nothing really to applaud or celebrate. You realize authenticity for the sake of authenticity alone could still be nothing more than glorifying your sin and justifying yourself. Confession out loud is not the sum total of repentance. Now, here's what's tricky. Because it is part of repentance, you can have this sense. I understand why people keep stepping in it and thinking, there we go. I I even feel better. Because it is a part of repentance, it can feel to get it out, right? To get it out there. I'm no longer hiding it. I'm no longer trying to cover it up. I no longer have the tension of like, oh, what if someone finds out there? Can feel so cathartic and purifying, But the reason it does is because the Bible teaches when you cover up your sin, when you hide your sin, oh my goodness, you are the most miserable person. Read Psalm 51, read Psalm 32, read Psalm 36, where the psalmist describes how miserable he was while he lived with secret sin. It affected his physical body. It affected his emotions. It affected his mind. And so, yes, confession is a part of the repentance process. It's just not the sum total. But we've got people that think, I can't tell you how many times I sit in difficult counseling when something heinous has come out. And the person who's done it, I just see this over and over and over and over and over and over Keep saying, I don't know why we're having these meetings, Pastor Brad. I confessed it to God. I confessed it to her. I've confessed it to you. Why can't we just move on? My favorite answer is, why can't you just shut up? No, I don't. I'm like, dude, you've known about this for years. We're just finding out. And here's the deal. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who covers his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses, is he done? And say it, forsakes it, will find mercy. I'll say, I'm so glad you came in. Confession brought you in. 
But the, the process that God wants you on is to forsake it now. And you're going to need some help forsaking it because you'd built your world around this sin. This is what you've lived for. You've been hiding this. You've been, you've been, you've been taking this as a place of comfort and refuge. Maybe you've even adopted this as your identity. This is not going to be easy or you'll be right back in it again. If you don't make plans, and this is the difficult part, you might need help to forsake it. You will not find mercy. Whoever confesses and, say it, forsakes will find mercy. Confession alone is not enough. It's the first step onto the path of repentance. Number three, repentance is more than partial surrender. Repentance is more than partial surrender. In other words, repentance is not a decision. Here's what people like to do. Repentance is not a decision to give Jesus certain areas of your life while you hold on to the most important ones. There, you can have that. Take, but I didn't really care about that that much anyway. The things I care about most, the things I really want, the things that, I, that have tentacles wrapped around my heart and my life that, ooh, I've been doing this a long time. I'll, I'll just keep those. Repentance is not a decision to give Jesus certain areas of your life while you hold on to the most important ones. In fact, it's worth noting, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when you read the Gospels, when you see Jesus calling us to follow him, have you ever noticed? You'll never see him give us a list of things to deny. Instead, he says you have to deny and dethrone your very self. Deny your self. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny and dethrone your very self from ruling and reigning so that he can be king. That's what repentance is. You get off the throne of your life. And on your knees, as you say, take control, King Jesus, Lord Jesus. Rule my life. Rule my life. Reign. Have the ultimate authority. I submit to you. In other words, we've got a big social media day. Let me help you here. You don't follow Jesus like you follow people on Instagram or Twitter. You know what I'm talking about? Where you say, sure, I follow her. I follow him. Doesn't mean I have to agree with everything they tweet or say or post. Excellent. Excellent. You should not when you're following a person. But that's really bad when you say you've repented and you're following Jesus. Repentance is not allowing Jesus to be a voice of influence in my life and to give me something to ponder and consider. That's that's interesting, Jesus. I'll give that thought. No. No. When you repent and you're following Jesus, it means you're submitting to him in all areas, at all times, 
whether or not you agree with what he says and whether or not it matches how you feel. Oh, but I don't feel that way. That doesn't feel right. Hey, you've had a lifetime of sinning. There's things that you think feel right that aren't. There's things that will feel wrong and awkward that are actually right. You cannot live by your feelings and you better give up the authority of thinking, if I think it strongly, it must be right. You are a finite fallen sinner and so am I. You say, yes, Lord Jesus. Oh my goodness, I would have never thought of that, but that's what you say, so here we go. Oh my goodness, That doesn't match how I feel, but you say it. Here we go. I will trample across my feelings to follow you. And here's the good news to some of you. And you haven't found this out because you haven't been willing to do it. As you choose to follow what he says, feelings can begin to follow eventually. You can obey your way into a new feeling. But some of you are like, until I feel it, I can't do it. You'll probably just stay stuck in your sin and your disobedience. Finally, for your life to be changed, you'll need to see yourself. This is so hard for us. You'll need to see yourself as no better than anyone else. You'll need to see yourself. And we got, a, we got a year where I think people are putting each other into categories. Oh, my goodness, we're categorizing each other. And these are the enemies. These are the bad people. These are the... And certainly not me. For your life to change, you'll need to see yourself as no better than anyone else. It's worth noting that Luke highlights three different groups of people in this passage that John was talking to. The crowd in verse 10, tax collectors in verse 12, and Roman soldiers in verse 14. Why? Why not mention farmers and fishermen and carpenters and lawyers? They were all in the crowd. Why does he highlight these three groups? The crowd, tax collectors, and Roman soldiers. I'll tell you what I think Luke is doing. He chooses these three particular groups because these three groups are hostile and hate each other. These three groups hate each other. And so the average person in the, quote, crowd in verse 10 would be saying, oh, I know I'm not perfect and I could probably do better, but at least I'm not like that tax collector. And I'm certainly not a pagan, Roman, soldier. I'm not like them. And so here they all are. He has all three groups ask the same question. You notice that? Verse 10, verse 12, verse 14. What shall we do? And he doesn't say, oh, for you average people, do this. Oh, for tax collectors. Oh, you're going to have to. And Roman, pagan, Roman soldiers. Oh my goodness, the list is way longer. No. They all ask the same question. What shall we do? And they all get the same answer. Repent. And it's worth noting that all three of the examples he gives of what repentance looks like have to do with money and possessions. 
Don't hear me saying that that's how you become a Christian, give away some money. Do hear me saying God knows something about us. There are certain sins that are much more at the heart of who we are. And if you read your Bible, you'll see sexuality and money and possessions fit that category. And he is saying you're going to have to repent on a heart level with the things that you trust in the most that you tend to hang on to and say, but not that, but not that. It's all in, all out, yes, Lord Jesus. He gives the same message to every person. Because when Jesus broke into our world and the call to repent was proclaimed, it shattered all of our categories and class distinctions and priorities that we think set us apart as being better than anyone else. There is no better category. Whoever you are, whatever you think about yourself, whatever you think you've done or not done, apart from the grace and mercy of God in his son, Jesus Christ, you would be going to hell. You're not in a better category. We are all in the same desperate need of a savior because we all share the same sinful condition that is at the core of our being, which is a rebellion against the God of the universe and a desire to protect and promote self. And apart from the mercy of God that's found in the son of God, we would all be going to hell. So as I close... I want you to look at verse 18 again. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to them. Here's what I think Luke is saying. I didn't write down everything that John said in his message. But I want you to know he preached good news to them. In other words... The grown-up baby John talked about the grown-up baby Jesus as the only hope for real change in our world. Because real change only happens as real people come to faith in Christ one person at a time. Real people coming to faith in Jesus Christ one person at a time. And that good news sounds like great news when you hear it in the context of the wrath and judgment of God that is to come. Do you see how this passage talks about wrath of God? Talks about unquenchable fire. Talks about burning. Oh my goodness, good news sounds like great news when you hear it in the context of the wrath and judgment of God that is coming. And it is coming. Look at how he kicks off his sermon in verse 7, because this is not a seeker-sensitive sermon. You brood of vipers! Oh, that's how to win friends and influence people. I don't think he learned that in seminary. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This passage teaches us, you guys, the same Jesus who came to take away the sins of the world is the same Jesus who's coming back to judge the sins of the world. And it won't matter your power, your position, your status. If you have not repented 
and trusted in the love of Jesus that's being offered now, you will face the wrath of Jesus. You'll face his wrath. He's coming back to judge everyone who has not repented. That's what Revelation 6 is talking about. Very scary. If you've never made it to the end of the Bible and you say, but but Revelation is so confusing. Yeah, there's confusing things and there's other scary things that are absolutely clear. So read it and take heart the things that are so clear, so clear, that are so scary. And you realize, oh my goodness, this is real. Oh my goodness, this matters. Oh my goodness, today is the day of salvation. Romans 6 says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. In John's gospel, we have him pointing at Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That same John wrote the book of Revelation and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who's coming to judge the world. It's the same Jesus. But if you delay, listen, my friend, if you don't know Christ, if you're not a Christian, don't delay. You'll never have a better opportunity to come to faith in Christ and to put your hope in Christ than now, today, today. The free offer goes out today. Believe, trust, trust. Turn from your sin to his son and say, yes, Lord Jesus And listen to me, Christians, let me leave you with a final word. So unbeliever, my word is come today. Come today, don't delay. But Christians, let me leave you with a final word. The day you stop repenting is the day you stop becoming more like Jesus. It's a race of repentance. It's a process of repentance. So let me ask you, is your Christian life stagnant? And have you lost your joy? If so, I would encourage you to look back and see when and where you stopped repenting. And that's probably where you left and lost your joy and your peace. Oh, there's joy and peace when you're following Jesus. Yeah, it's hard work, but it's worth it. And you're being satisfied in him and you know him. And you're becoming more like him. You'll never be sinless. But you will begin to sin less and less. As like John the Baptist said in John 3. He must increase. I must what? Decrease. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. And thank you for giving us your word in our world today. We love you. 
We want to live for you. We want to live for what matters most. We want our agenda to be submitted to and in align with your agenda. And we want to have genuine joy and peace so that we can be the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ in every place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.